Oh, I thought we'd start off with a question today. Actually, somebody already knows it in here. I know two people that know it, the answer to the question, because I was talking to them in the hall. But uh, give me, this is a secret code, and I want to see if you know what the secret code is, okay? The secret code is this. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, start. Okay, oh, Chris knows. Okay, okay, he knows, okay. Okay, we know. What is that? What is that? Anybody know? What is it? It's a what? Okay, it's a code. I used to call them cheat codes. That's what I called them. Actually, if you ever played the, the video game Contra, it's Contra. Actually, it works on several other games, too, I understand. It's from the Nintendo. Nintendo. Uh, actually, I met somebody in the hall while I go a couple, and both of them actually knew it. I'm going like, dudes, you still remember a cheat code from a game that was like, you know, a long time ago? Yeah, you know, it's this cheat code. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. Now, I didn't know that. I had to learn that because I don't play games. Uh, I learned che- what cheat codes were from my son, who used to play me in games all the time. Of course, he didn't have to cheat to beat me uh, because I was so lousy at him, and so I quit playing after a very short period of time. But uh, the person that told me about that said that it was a Nintendo. It's actually the little ones where you had to stick little cartridges and you had to blow in them so they, you know, so they could, they'd work. You know, it was that kind of game. You know, so it shows how long ago that was. It was a long time ago. But as a cheat code. But what he would do is when you put that code in, according to what the person that told me, it would give you either unlimited or certain ones you put in unlimited or 30 free lives uh, to play the game so you could beat the game more. And, and wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if uh, there was some secret code in the Bible that would somehow cause God's hand to move? Uh, and he would, you know, as we, we say a prayer, we would put in a certain code and uh, God would answer our prayers. Sometimes we think that would be fantastic. But the issue is, is that uh, as we study chapter 16 of the story, and that's where we are in the story, story is uh, a chronological Bible that we've been reading through that has um, uh, uh, condensed as well and it has... We've been going through that. We started in Genesis, and we're now up and uh, talking about the prophets. But as we study chapter 16 of the story, uh, we will not see a special code revealed about how to have God's blessing in your life. But what we will see is there are certain ways of living uh, that God, as we see in Scripture, that kinds of opens God a possibility of blessing in God's life, and there's certain kind of living that closes the door to God as well. And we'll see both of those in chapter 16. And if you read that. Uh, this week as well. I encourage you, if you've not read it, to continue to read the story. And uh, chapter 16 for this week, and you'll be talking about that in your small groups as well. Uh, where we are, as we've talked about in the story uh, the, a few weeks ago about Solomon and how he was uh, the last uh, king of a united kingdom of, of Israel. And then what happened was after him, because he introduced uh, a lot of idol worship into the people, this kingdom was divided. And it was a northern kingdom, which was made up of ten of the tribes, of ten of the twelve tribes of, of Israel. And that northern kingdom was called Israel. And the southern kingdom was made up of just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And it was called Judah. And so we had these two groups of people now, two separate nations in a real sense. And in what we've looked at so far is what happened is, is once they became these two separate nations, that each one of these nations had their own kings. And each one of the kings, out of all the kings that were there, the 38 kings that were there, uh, 33 of the kings were considered evil kings. They were basically people who it says in Scripture that they turned their hearts away from God and, and they worshipped idols as well. Only five of the kings uh, would, would have been seen uh, as, as godly people or at least people that would follow God at all. And during this period of time, we've already, already studied as well, and what happened is when, when these people started leading the people astray, God brought into the, into the life of the nation of Israel and Judah 
some people called prophets. And prophets were people that were brought in uh, by God, sent by God, to raise the awareness of the people in regards to the, the consequences of their continued sin. And so we see that throughout, throughout Scripture. And so um, it was over a period of about 200 plus years that this happened. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16, this is what it says about mostly the northern kingdom, but about the southern kingdom as well. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, talking about Israel, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. It got to a place because the people kept turning away and kept turning away from God that, he, that even God got, in a sense, fed up with them in regard to how far they had turned away from because they wouldn't listen. And during the same time, what God does, he doesn't directly just smash the people, but what he does with the northern kingdom, he allows a, a powerful neighbor to the, uh, to the north, the Assyrians, to become come down and overcome the, the northern kingdom. Uh, and they, they came down and, and, uh, and took over the kingdom and we really do not hear from the northern kingdom again. It basically dis- disappears. It kind of uh, infil- becomes a part of all the nations that it's around it. And that's where we see ourselves uh, in the story. And it says this about, about them as well. In Isaiah, who was one of the prophets in this time, in chapter 2, it says this, For the Lord has rejected his people, the descendants of Jacob, because they have filled their land with practices from the east and with sorcerers, as the Philistines do. They have made alliances with pagans, Israel is full of silver and gold, but there is no end to its treasures. Their land is full of war horses. There is no end to its chariots, so they are a wealthy nation. Their land is full of idols, though. The people worship things that have made, they have made with their own hands. So now they will be humbled, and they will all be brought low. Do not forgive them. Crawl into caves in the rocks. Hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. Human pride will be brought down, and human arrogance will be humbled. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. The Lord of, our, of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning. He will punish the proud and mighty and bring down everything that is exalted. So we read that as kind of like the, uh, the, the end of the story for the northern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom is there. But the southern kingdom at the same time is watching all of this happening. And they're seeing, and the northern kingdom was much larger. The southern kingdom was watching all the things that were happening in the northern kingdom. They knew about the Assyrians. They knew that they were probably next on the agenda for the Assyrians. And so during that time, while they're watching, we see God getting their attention. God gets our, gets our attention in various ways, does he not? Uh, one of the ways God gets our attention is, I found in our, my life, is that he speaks the right word at the right time. I cannot tell you how many times uh, on Sunday mornings as I'm doing exit greeting at the door, uh, people will come and say, Pastor, you must have been listening into my conversation at home. Uh, because that's exactly what I needed to hear. Folks, we do not tap your phones. Guarantee. Okay? We don't do that. It's illegal, plus it is, for us at least, it's illegal, and plus we just don't do it. Okay? But the issue is, is that the real, the realization is, is that as we, God brings upon our hearts from a leadership standpoint to teach on certain things, there will be things that will hit somebody every, every week just about, and sometimes multiple times. I've had other times people will come to me and say to me, well, a pastor, uh, I got this friend coming to church. I'm bringing him to church, and 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 uh, what are you preaching on next week? And I'll tell them to go. Don't preach on that because it's exactly what their problem is. And I'm going like, well, maybe that's exactly what they need to hear. So God speaks to us. One of the ways He gets their attention is He um, He speaks to us 
with just the right word at the right time. Another way that he speaks to us is, is through warning us through the path of others around us. You've probably heard that it's wise to learn from your mistakes, but it's wiser to learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, that's the truth. The wise person doesn't have to make the mistakes themselves. And so what happens that we see in Scripture here, we see, in a sense, God getting the attention of the southern kingdom uh, as, as the northern kingdom has fallen apart, as they're being overtaken by the Assyrians. Uh, and even though the southern kingdom would soon be destroyed, I'm kind of giving you a little heads up of what's going to happen, God specifically spares the people in the southern kingdom while there's one person alive. There's, that's their X factor. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king there. So if, uh, if you're praying for God's blessing or hope to see the hand of God move in your life, then you ought to pay special attention to the story today. Because it doesn't give you a secret code, but what it does, it contrasts two different types of living. One that opens the door for the possibility of God's blessing, one that closes the door on God's blessing and God's direction in your lives. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. In, in the, in, in the story of Hezekiah, we're looking at chapter two, or chapter 32 of Second Chronicles. So if you have your Bible today, or if you have your, the story, you can turn to that as well, chapter 16. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, uh, we read these words. And this is the words that are spoken by King Hezekiah as, he, as they're observing all the things happening in the north. And now what's happening is there, he's saying, this is what, he's saying this to his nation. He says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. By the way, the king of Assyria had an army of 185,000 people. No small army in that day. Um, For there is a power far greater on our side, Hezekiah says. He may have a great army, but they're merely men, even though there are 185,000 of them. We have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. And so that's the setting we see today. This is the thing that Hezekiah says. Now, the reality is, is the king, the king of, uh, of the Assyrians, what he does is he's already fought a bunch of battles and he's probably being fatigued of battle. And so he decides instead of going and attacking right away, he says, what I'll do is I'll send some emissaries into the, into the southern kingdom and I'll talk to the people and maybe they'll just surrender because we're such mighty people. And so he sends these emissaries and this is what they say to the people, not to... Not to Hezekiah, but to the people. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verse 13. Surely you must realize what I and the other kings of Assyria before me have done to all the people of the earth. Were any of the gods of those nations able to rescue their people from my power? Which of their gods was able to rescue its people from the destructive power of my predecessors? What makes you think your gods can rescue you from me? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't let him fool you like this. I say it again. No God of any nation or kingdom has ever been able to rescue his people from me or my ancestors. How much less will your God rescue you from my power? I think if I'd have been anybody standing close by that person that said that, I would have stepped away. Because what he was doing, he was directly challenging the authority and the power of God. That's what he was doing. He was saying, you know, Nobody can, nobody can last. And so he was hoping what would happen is they would give up without a fight. They would do that. But we read in Scripture, in a sense, Hezekiah's response. Because what if the people have become disturbed here and they're going like, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the problem is so big. There's this huge army. There's, the, the Assyrians have already captured this much larger group of people to the north. All they can do is just overwhelm us. 
And so often in life, that's the way our problems seem, don't they? It seems like there's this huge army camped outside the door. And what happens is, is that the, you know, whatever the problem is, we're going like there's no solution to it. I mean, the marital problems we have, the money problems we have, the relationship problems, the job problems, whatever it may be, sometimes seem so huge that they're, they're, it's impossible for, for God, even God to repair them. But we see Hezekiah's response, and we begin to understand a little bit about the difference between Hezekiah and all the other kings that had gone before him. In verse 20, he says this in response to what these people were saying. Then King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to God in heaven. Their first response was to seek God, to seek his face. And then in verse 21, we read the God's response. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed the Assyrian army with all its commanders and officers. So Sennacherib, and that's a strange name, I know. Sennacherib was forced to return home. This is the, that's the king of Assyria. Was forced to return home in disgrace to his own land. Battle over, it's all done. No fighting. But it wasn't exactly what Sennacherib thought when he sent his emissaries there. He thought it was going to be the other way around. And so God wipes out 185,000 of these soldiers. And, and simply Hezekiah didn't have to lift a finger in, in regards to this. See, when we look at the life of Hezekiah, I want us to look at what was distinct about him. What was it about his life that brought the blessing of God rather than the discipline of God? Because that was what happened. The discipline of God was what happened to everybody else in the northern kingdom. And actually, it's what's going to happen to the people in the southern kingdom as well, eventually. Because in 2 Chronicles 32, 26, it says, Therefore the Lord's wrath did not come on them during the days of Hezekiah. So there's something different about him. And what was it? Well, I saw just two things that I really stand out. And these are really incredibly simple things. It's not a secret formula. It's not just, you know, you press three buttons and it just happens. No, this is something real simple. The first is this. The first thing that was different about Hezekiah is this. Hezekiah had a commitment to purity. He had a commitment to purity. It says uh, that we see what we specifically see about Hezekiah is he, early on, we see him repenting of the pride in his heart. He humbled himself, and when he did, it turned the favor of God toward him. He cleansed his heart of, heart of pride and selfishness. He purified himself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 3, 3 through 6 and 15 and 16, we read about when he became king. When Hezekiah became king, he was 25 years old. He wasn't necessarily an older, wise person. You know, the older you get, the younger everybody looks. You notice that? Some of you who are a little young, you think, 25, man, he's such a mature person. No, I don't think 25-year-olds is, I'm sorry. You know, if you're 25, I'm sorry. You're just getting there, okay? That's a long way to go in life. But... The issue is he's 25 years old. And this is what he does. The first thing it says he does. In the first month of the first year, the first thing he does of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. What's the big deal about that? Well, for all these years, the worship of God had been, had been just, just neglected. And one of the visible outward signs of that was that the temple itself where they worshipped God had just been, it was in disrepair. It's like, as if you'd come in this morning and the doors had been halfway fallen off the, the building and, you know, and everything was just nasty, dirty, everything, you know, it's that kind of thing. They just let it go. So the first thing he does, he goes and he does, he opens the doors of the temple and repairs them. And it says, he brought in the priests and the Levites. He assembled them in the square on the east side and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all the defilement from the sanctuary. He says, okay, now what I want you to do is uh, we're repenting of our sin, and so we're going to do this outwardly. We're going to do it visibly. We're going to remove all the stuff that has been brought in. There had been stuff brought in there that wasn't 
uh, part of the worship of God, but it had been worship of others, other gods. It says this, Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook Him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on Him. And when they assembled their fellow Levites and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple of the Lord. So the first thing that Hezekiah does in his reign, the first act of office, is not to do a study of the union address. His first thing he does is, let's clean up the mess that's been before us. Let's purify, let's humble ourselves before the God and say, God, what we have done before has been has has been not has not been right. Um so often in life we want to make we want to think that we have these really high standards, those who call ourselves Christians, we have these really high standards of purity in our lives. But so often how what, what we measure the standard by is we measure it by culture. Oh, we're so much more pure, we're so much more righteous than culture. The problem is that's not the standard we measure it by. We measure it by God's word. It's kind of like this. Um, I was reading, doing some research for this message, and I was online uh, doing, uh, looking at, at the FDA's, the Food and Drug Administration's, purity standards for the food that we eat. You ever done that before? Just for fun? No, I doubt it. But let me give you some illustrations of the standard. These are the standards for the food. These are the minimum standards for the food that we eat. I just chose four foods at random. Apple butter, okay? I don't know if any of you ever, any of you eat apple butter ever, you know, eat it on your biscuits or maybe you had it this morning. Here's the standard of the standards that they'll let, okay? The mold count of apple butter can be no more than 12%. So 11% all right of mold. There can be no more, they can average no more than four rodent hairs per 100 grams of apple butter. Or no more than five, no more than five whole insects per 100 grams. Anything above that's considered inedible. Let's all go out and eat some apple butter. Rodent hairs, bugs, the whole thing, you know, whatever. If that didn't get you, how many drank coffee when you came in this morning? (laughs) Coffee beans, FDA standards. Coffee beans will be, will be, I can't talk, will be withdrawn from the market if 10% or more are insect infested. So 9% is good. And if there are, or if there is one or more live insects in each of two or more immediate containers. So you can even have one live insect per two containers and you're all right, just as long as you don't have, you know, more than that. I sure, you know, anyway, anyway, okay. Mushrooms. Any of you like mushrooms? Love mushrooms. Eat mushrooms on lots of stuff. You know, cook mushrooms, whatever. Mushrooms. The FDA says that they cannot be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. I didn't make this up, folks. FDA website. Okay. Hot dogs. <laughs> That's the same response I got last service. <laughs> And I'll give you the same answer. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you, cause you might be not, you may never eat a hot dog again. It is unreal. It is unreal what some of the standards, you're going, really? You, you see, we like to think that the standard of purity is pretty high for the food we eat. 
But we've just come to accept that as the standard of purity. You know, bugs, maggots. I'm sorry, it's the truth. That's just the way it is. That's the standard of purity. It's not pure, it's just... And chances are, let me tell you, when we leave this building, there's still probably some coffee out there, and some of you, it won't stop you a bit that it may have some live insects roaming around in it somewhere. Well, at least at one time. Not now. We've cooked it now. You know, whatever. But the issue is, is that we think that we have that. See, I wonder, I wonder if the standard of purity in our lives needs to be reexamined as well. Because sometimes we've just kind of gotten used to the standard that we're at. We're going like, well, I'm not like the rest of culture. I don't do this, 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 and this. And it's not those things. It's the issue. It's the issue of the things that come between us and God. In Ephesians 5, it says that one of the ways that we can can kind of examine what the standards are is to be washed in the Word. It uses that phrase. That we can kind of be cleansed in the Word by turning to God's Word and looking at His standards. And in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, this, is, this says how, it, how, the, how it's the deal about how to become purified. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, if we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just, and He will forgive our sins and do what? And He will purify us from all unrighteousness. See, what it is, it's bringing the sin to the light. It's simply saying, God, I admit this is a sin in my life, and I want you to take it, and I want you to expunge it from my life. We don't purify ourselves. We confess our sins, repent, and let God do the purification. And we talked about this last week. It's presumptuous for us to pray for the blessing of God when we're knowingly offending God in some area of our lives. Because there may be something between us and God is causing some, some, some problems. It's, it's kind of like this. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, say it's summertime. Wouldn't that be nice? I love summer. I hate winter. You didn't know that already if you've been here more than three weeks, you know. I'm not a winter person. God brought me here for some reason to punish. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I deal with it. It's all right. I know. Um, imagine it's summertime. You've gone away for a two-week vacation. During that time, it's rained a lot in your yard. The grass has really gotten ahead of itself. It's like eight inches tall. Okay, It's thick and eight inches tall. And you realize normally you cut your grass as often as possible because you have this cheap Kmart lawnmower. You know, it just doesn't work too well. You know, it doesn't go through high grass. You know, it just doesn't work very well. And you're going like, there's no way that my Kmart lawnmower is going to get me through that grass. What am I going to do? Then you remember that your neighbor, your neighbor has this, has this John Deere riding lawnmower. He calls it a tractor because it makes him feel like more like a man. But, uh, but the issue is, is he has this John Deere tractor, and he has told you, or you remember in the past, he said, you know, if you ever really get in a pinch and you need, you know, need this, you can borrow my tractor. And you're going like, yes. And so you start your way over to his house, wading through your grass, you know, over there, except that your neighbor has this annoying wiener dog. And he yaps all the time, and he comes over into your yard and leaves deposits, and, and he just does all those kind of things. And you're going across there, and you're walking toward your neighbor's yard, and the, the wiener dog comes out, and he attacks you, you know, as a wiener dog's will. Grabs you about the ankle on the, on the pants, and he's pulling at it, you know, and you're going, like, what to do? And you're just annoyed by the wiener dog. So you do what every good person that should do to a wiener dog, you punt it. <laughs> right? I mean... Natural response. Wiener dog attached to your leg, you punt it. You're going like, where's the story going? Uh, 
I'll tell you. About that time, remember you're going over to his house to borrow his lawnmower, John Deere. About that time, you look over, and here standing on the porch is your neighbor with his arms crossed. He just saw you hunt his wiener dog. Is now the time for you to ask him to loan for, for him to loan you his lawnmower? Probably not if you're smart. You have this transgression that has just been you've done between you and I mean you may be in the right, yeah, okay. But the issue is is you punted his wiener dog, and that's probably not cool with him. You probably need to deal with the transgression and ask for repent uh, ask for forgiveness first before you can ask for the lawnmower, the blessing of the lawnmower. See, so often in life what it is is we have these things between us and God that we have not asked for permission. We have not cleared up between us and God. And it causes us to have this, this kind of barrier between us and God. It says in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear. I mean, God can hear and God can do what he wants to. It says this, though, but your iniquities, your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. It's not that God doesn't hear. It's that because of the things you have between the transgressions, you kicked God's wiener dog. And it's between you and him. You need to clear it up. Isn't that a strange analogy? I don't know. But it makes sense. You won't forget it. The issue is, is that that's the first thing we need to understand. And the thing that, that Hezekiah understood more clearly than anything else is the transgressions that was between him and God. And he, humbling himself before God, what he did is God brought to his memory. These are the things you need to clear up. And he began to do it. And it opened the door for God's blessings in his life. The second thing we see in Hezekiah's life, and this is really quick, is that Hezekiah demonstrates a commitment to prayer. I mean, we saw this already when I talked about his response to the to the to the uh, things that the, the king of Assyria had said in Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two, verse twenty. It says, "Then King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to God in heaven." I mean, his first response was not to sit down and figure out a battle plan. How are we going to deal with this? His first response says, "God, we can't do this. I'm dependent upon you, and we are dependent upon you." And so he prays. So he had this. He didn't have anything between him and God because he'd purif- he had allowed God to purify him. And then what he did, he had this communication with God, connection with God there as well. We also read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 24, that Hezekiah became ill. It says, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. What was the first thing he did? He prayed to God who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. The thing I see here in this scripture is this. There's two different types of living. The first is one that, that ignores God, that simply just doesn't deal with any of the issues in life and expects God to still bless them anyway. Doesn't work. The other is Hezekiah's response, simply, to be humble before God in such a way that God reveals in, in, our, in his life the things that need to be cleared up. And allow God to do that and then have a constant communication with God. There's no secret code. But what I think this scripture calls us to is a commitment to purity, to a humble repentance, and to a commitment towards communicating with God through prayer. And then the result was this. God spared the southern kingdom during the life of Hezekiah. But then immediately after Hezekiah, what we see in scripture is his son Manasseh takes the throne. 
He doesn't follow in his father's footsteps. He returns to the prideful idolatry of the past kings. And the southern kingdom is, is wiped out just like the northern kingdom. The only good news is, is eventually the southern kingdom does make a comeback, but not of its own doing, only because God works in the life of a foreign king, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. You see, the thing is this. When we get to this place in the story where we've been talking about all the ways that people have been trying to connect with God and follow God, nothing seems to be working. First of all, we talked about how they tried the law, all the, the follow the law, and, and they couldn't keep the law. Then they tried kings, and the kings were proud and disobedient. And then they tried prophets, but nobody would listen to the prophets. And there just doesn't seem to be any hope for these people. But there's no coincidence that in the midst of this, there's this prophet named Isaiah that we start to read prophecy after prophecy about that's focused on what's about to come, Jesus Christ. 700 years before he is born, Isaiah begins to say, you know, our hope is not in all these other things, kings and the law and even prophets. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. That's why sometimes the Isaiah is considered the fifth gospel. It's, it's that which talks all about Jesus. Last week after church, I was uh, talking to a person in the hall, and you know, and I always try to get feedback uh, when I can and have time to do that, and especially after church with lots of people talking. And, and this person was, uh, we were talking about the story and where we were in the story, and they were saying about um, how helpful it had been during this part of Scripture, especially because of all the prophets and all the different kingdoms and, and how, who was doing what, and it kind of helped clear up some stuff. And, and I thought, no, that's great. And they looked at me and said this, though. They said, can I be totally honest with you? And, you know, what, what do you say? No, just tell me a lie. <laughs> no, I said no. You know, I said, yeah, sure. And he said, you know, while it's been good, I'm kind of getting tired of the Old Testament. Well, that's pretty honest. And at that point, I thought for a moment, and I said, you know, that's the point of the Old Testament. You just get tired of it because it doesn't work. It's all pointing to Jesus because he's the only hope we have. The Old Testament points out how it doesn't work, but it all points toward what does. See, the truth is, even when you and I don't realize it, we're always dependent upon God. We're just as dependent on God to provide before the economy tanked. We just didn't realize it. We were dependent on God all along, but when something has been stripped away from us, what happens is we suddenly are desperate, and desperation has a way of making us realize our dependence. And when we do, and we seek God and humbly come before Him and say, God, what He does, He begins to reveal the areas of our life where we need to get some things cleaned up, some things that are between us and Him. And that's when we start praying and acknowledging our dependence upon God. But in order to really see the need for dependence, we must first purge our hearts of the pride, the arrogance, the selfishness, we must realize what Jesus says to us when he says, come to me, all you who are weary. And the thing is, the good thing is you don't have to be perfect for God to work in your life. In fact, quite the opposite. But you do have to be willing to let God change who you are to purify you. Hezekiah has a great lesson. It shows the kind of life that God wants us to live. For his benefit, but also for ours. And so the question this week is this. What is it between you and God that you need to 
seek his face and and ask him to change so that you won't have anything between you and him. So that you pray that you not only will you know what God wants you to do, but also he can answer the prayers in your life. And not all the times will he answer them the way that we think. Because sometimes, hey, we're limited in our knowledge. But it does open the door for God to begin to work in our lives in ways that we can't even imagine as he did in the life of Hezekiah. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.